love to get to meet you if I haven't had the chance to yet. The rest of our staff would as well. So, so please don't be shy. Please hop into a group. It's going to be going to be a sweet time. Um, we're starting a new series tonight. Um, and just to kind of get us in, in that, that headspace, I wonder if some of y'all are like me in, in that you often do this thing where you have a conversation with someone in your head before you have it with them in person. Anyone? Just me. Okay. No, thank you, Matthew. One person other than I. Right? No, you know you do. Like your parents, like that one thing, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to legislate my way out of this one. Like the car, like needs to be back at this time, whatever it is. Some of y'all back already. You've been back on campus for like three days, and you've had to have one of those conversations in your head with your roommate. Right? Like that's just a, a real piece uh, of what this is like. I am, um, I remember a moment when I was a freshman at, at the University of South Florida. And uh, as a freshman at USF, uh, I was driving back from my friend's house uh, late, late, late one night. And when I was driving back late one night, uh, I did this thing that I thought made a ton of sense, but turned out to be a really bad idea. And maybe you've done this. I, uh, I waved at a cop at one in the morning. Um, that, to me, was a hey, acknowledging you, breathing human. Um, and what he interpreted that was, hey, that guy's intoxicated in driving. I'm not kidding. Uh, he pulled me over, wrapped on my windshield, and did not, and this is terrifying. I've just had bad experiences, right? And it was terrifying. And he, and he looked at me, and he's, he, didn't, he didn't say license registration. He didn't say, how's your evening going? He said, how much have you been drinking? Like, those were the first words. And I'm sitting there like, nothing? Like, I'm like 18-year-old baby little Rudy. Like, I'm like, I don't, not zero? Like, I don't, I don't, that's a bad decision, right? Like, that's not it. So I, I, I remember what, what, that would have been, like, what I should have said to him in that moment. But in my head, I'd been having this conversation, like, how this is going to go. I'm like, okay, if he, if he says I was speeding, what do I say to tell him, like, politely, but also firmly, like, I was not speeding. So, or, or, like, like if I, like, like, uh, like, like, if he thought that I swerved a little bit, at one point, I'm like, no, I didn't. It didn't happen at all. It is not. Like, I'm having this conversation in my head, and he comes up to me, raps on the uh, window, goes down, and he says, how much have you been drinking? Here's how I respond. I looked at him, and I went, <clears throat> Which is not what you should do when the cop's asking if you've been drinking. Like, like it, that was just a really, really bad thing. That it, now it ended up being okay. I did have to take a breathalyzer and a full feed sobriety test at 18 on the side of the road at USF. That was wild. Um, passed it, obviously. And then invited the dude to Chick-fil-A, which is where I worked at the time, right? Like, it was nuts. Okay, but, but all, all, that, all that to say this. Here's what happens. The conversation I had with him was not at all what I expected it to be. And we, that happens when, when we do this. The conversations that we have in our head, when they move to be in person, the result sometimes is predictable. But if we're honest, sometimes it's quite unexpected. And I wonder if you've ever just done kind of a thought experiment. I wonder if you've ever wondered what a conversation with, with, with Jesus would be like. Like, I wonder if you've ever wondered, like, what a conversation with you, whether you've known him for a long time, whether you've got, like, a cultural idea of, like, what he's like, who he is. I wonder if you've just ever wondered what a conversation with Jesus would have been like. Face-to-face, -face, first century, near Middle East, what would that have been like? Like, he starts to get into your life, like, what would that have been like? 
I'm willing to bet, based on conversations recorded in the Bible, one of which we're going to look at, that the outcome of that conversation would have been incredibly unexpected. This actually is the consistent norm of conversations with Jesus. He has conversations with unexpected people with unexpected results. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three of those people and three of those unexpected outcomes. And our first one right here is, is Luke, Luke 5. I, I just want to, like, help you see and embody this text for just a moment. So, so again, if you just wonder with me for a moment, I, I want you to imagine that you are a young child growing up in the first century, in the near Middle East, near Capernaum, off of a lake. Your life is incredibly simple. You're in the Fertile Crescent. There's likely enough that's provided from your father's trade for you to have a roof over your head and to have food week after week. But you don't really think about those things because you're, you're a kid, right? So you've got food and family, and, and that's enough. You, you practice the Sabbath because you've grown up in the culture, and you gather in the synagogue for teaching and for the Psalms, and you raise your hands in song in accord with the ancient practice of Scripture. Life is simple, and your path forward is clear. You're going to take the trade of your father just as he did from his father. You'll care for your parents, and you'll have your uh, parents in with you. You'll have your children in the same household with you, this household that's been passed down from, from generation to generation to generation in your family. You'll start your family in that home. You'll live. You'll die. You'll love the Lord your God, your family, and your neighbor. Your life feels predictable. It feels simple. You're just a child just moving through. Then one day, probably between the ages of 10 and 14, your mother pulls you aside and notices that there's a spot on your nose. And then notices that there's a, another spot on your arm and then another spot on your neck. And you, you try to clean them off, you do whatever you can to try to make them go away, but they don't go away. They actually just spread. And eventually you're taken to the local physician and, and the, the family stays home. Your father goes with you. He, he looks at you. The physician looks at you, takes a step back, takes a deep breath and says this word in Hebrew, Saureth. Saureth, which means a leprosy. You have a skin condition that is so contagious that it is going to not only kill you, but it will kill anybody that gets it from you in this culture, at this place, at this time. Near Middle East, first century. On that day that you hear those words, you have to understand your entire life is over. There is no more predictable and there is no more simple. It's the last time that you ever see your family up close again. You're immediately, by, by way of the law of your city, moved into a leprosy camp at that young age outside of the city. And as a person, you begin to experience the devastation of your condition. Relationally, you're isolated. On one hand, you really miss your family. But on the other hand, you feel the intense psychological pressure of if I'm around my family, I might get them sick too. I might actually like harm them if I'm near them. Your relationships that you have are only the other people who are experiencing different forms of leprosy, different skin conditions that are contagious and deadly in the camp. And it's a group of people who, in a word, are categorized by absolute hopelessness day after day you can just feel the heaviness in the air you, you feel the heaviness uh, relationally but you also feel the heaviness physically you experience intense pain as the condition spreads and it spreads and it spreads and you start to lose trust in your body you're careful not to touch others and not to be touched by others it affects you relationally physically and mentally you're alone you're isolated you're cut off 
Whenever you walk through the street, you have to cry out, scream, unclean, so that anybody that's around you might know to get out of your way. You go into the city and you shout that about yourself over and over and over again. Just imagine the mental strain of every time that you walked towards someone, you had to identify yourself to them as unclean. What would that do to you over time? You're formed by your condition. Physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, but further than that, spiritually. The spiritual component of this is significant. Your leprosy is culturally understood as a physical evidence of a spiritual condition. It's representative of your sin, and it's physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually devastating you. You're not allowed to gather in the synagogue anymore to worship as you once had because you can't be around people. You pray like your people do, morning, noon, and night, and morning, noon, and night, you're left with unanswered prayers for years. Imagine what that would do to you over time. You are, in a sense, cut off from God due to this condition that reflects your sin. And with that one word, Sarah, life as you knew it is over. Predictability ended. Simplicity ended. And so you resign yourself to this just being your existence for the rest of your days. You start to try to figure out, how do I live around my condition? If this is how life's going to be, how do I just learn how to live around it? There's no cure, so you learn how to form your life around this reality. And it gets to a point where you start to feel a little bit of hope. Things start to feel a little bit normal, and then hope is dashed over and over and over again. It is an eternal spiral of a never-ending crash over and over and over. How you are in your mind in this moment is how you'll always be. That's the person that we meet in this story. It's really easy to just read it and be like, oh, a leper. But that's his story. That's his life. But now imagine this. All of a sudden, you start to hear stories about someone named Jesus. He's based out of Capernaum, and he's going to different cities in the region, cities like yours. Stories of his teaching start to reach your ears, but so do stories of his miracles. He's claimed to be one with God the Father, God in the flesh. People are calling him the Messiah, the Savior, the one who's come, and he's backed it up with word and power. And you're experiencing the complexity of trying to have hope while in a hopeless condition. You hear about how Jesus healed people, but you also remember all your unanswered prayers. You hear how Jesus moves towards unexpected people in the cities that he visits, but you also remember how every other religious leader has moved away from you. It's complex as you're attempting to hope against hope. And then one day, you're in town, and being in town for you sucks. You need food, you need sustenance, so people leave it outside their doors and shops for you to glean, to get as a part of their practice in alignment with the law of God, to care for the physically ailed. But you've come into town, so you've got to walk the streets, so no one gets too close, and you've got to shout every time you see someone, unclean, unclean, unclean. So the people part before you like the sea before Moses. But then you eventually come across a really large crowd in the city. Now that's odd because it's not a festival and it's not a Sabbath. It doesn't make any sense that there's a large crowd. You just come across a, cloud, a crowd. And as you get there, you find because they're talking, you actually have to yell louder and louder and louder, which is just more embarrassing and painful. Unclean, unclean, unclean. And as they start to hear you, the crowd parts except for one person. 
Everyone moves to the left and to the right on the street. People push to the sides of the road, desperate to get away from you because you to them are walking death. This isn't a surprise. You've built your life around it, but it is surprising. It is unexpected that there's someone who's stayed in the middle of the road and he's looking right at you. But it's a different way than you've been looked at before. It's a blend of curious and warm, knowing and, and gentle. Without an introduction, without a word, having heard the stories and the whispers moving through town, you know who this is. He doesn't have to introduce himself. This is Jesus. So what do you do? Well, in the words of Eminem, you take your one shot. You got one shot. Possibly your only one. To, to come to this one that you've heard stories about, where you're like, okay, Jesus, if you're this person, if this is who you actually are, I'm going to take this shot and come to you. So what do you do? Luke 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What do you do? You hit the deck, unconcerned about the opinions of those who are around you, whose opinions you stopped having to care about long ago. You fall face down, and you beg him to do something. Because if he is who he says he is, then you know what you say is true. Lord, if you're willing, you can actually make me clean. Okay, let's flip to the crowd for just a second. Here's what the crowd would have expected Jesus to do in that moment. They would have expected Jesus to agree with them that this man with a deadly contagious skin condition was dangerous. They would have expected Jesus to treat him like he's walking death. And they would have expected him to keep a distance. Danger, death, distance. That's how everybody saw this guy. Except for Jesus. Who does the unexpected in verse 13. Reaching out his hand. Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left. Jesus has this encounter with this man and does three unexpected things. I would argue that the last thing that he does is the most unexpected, especially to the man that had leprosy. So check this out. The first thing that he does, if you're taking notes, is he, he touches the man. Jesus touches the man. How long do you think it had been since this man had last been touched? What do you think had happened to him the moment that he was touched for the first time in likely a decade or at least years? In a paper written in 2010 by the National Center for Biotechnical Information, it in no uncertain terms linked deprivation and development of children with a lack of sensory stimulation. To say that in words that people actually understand, touch is crucial to development, to our development as humans. And this is a man who had not been touched by anyone in years. And now it's not just anyone touching him, it's Jesus Christ. God incarnate, touching him, Christ's human hand offering divine help to this person who's in need. It is an incredibly beautiful and wildly dignifying moment as Jesus breaks every cultural expectation. Jesus meets walking death with resurrection power, walking life in himself. He touches what seems untouchable. He looks at the condition that the man had built his life around because it seemed hopeless and he brought hope. He stepped into the condition of sin and the physical expression of it where this man thought things could never change and he essentially says, I am the change. He moves towards walking death in himself who is walking life. I wonder if you were to just be honest, you're having your own conversation with Jesus. If there's anything in your life that you look at and you think, Jesus, you can deal with anything you want, but that feels untouchable. 
I know that you're good and I know that you do stuff and I've heard stuff about you. And I've heard Rudy and Jared and Rob and Molly and Katie. I've, I've heard people, talk, I've heard my connection group leader talk about you. But Jesus, I don't think you want anything to do with that thing. There's something that you don't want him to get near. Something you don't think maybe that he wants to get near. Let me just be as clear as I can to start this spring semester 2023 uh, uh, for you. There is nothing in you and nothing about you that Jesus Christ is afraid of. If you come to him, there's nothing that will distance you from him. He can handle the walking death of leprosy and he can handle the walking death of all of our sin. There is nothing in you that is untouchable, nothing in you that is too much for him, nothing that cannot be forgiven, healed, or saved by Jesus. He touches the man to show us that there is nothing untouchable in us. So he touched him. But he does the second thing. He, he spoke to him. Number two, he spoke to him. Watch these words. They're not complex. This is incredible what Jesus does. These words aren't complex. They're not shameful. He's not trying to be like, I'm smarter than you are. He's not trying to be all fancy with his words. He literally actually just mirrors back what the man says. Check this out. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be made clean. The only thing he doesn't repeat in this portion is Lord, because he's going to show him that he's Lord by cleansing the man. And that's what he does. He heals the man of his leprosy, which, if you get into the language was not what this man was asking for. This phrase, you can make me clean, has a meaning that we miss in English. He is not asking Jesus to heal him of his leprosy. He's asking Jesus to cleanse him of his sin. He's saying, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are and I've got one shot with you, I'm not asking you to heal my body. I'm asking you to heal my soul. I'm not asking you to just heal my skin. I'm asking you to take, to take my, my sin. It's similar then to what we saw back in September, the first message of last, spring, of last fall. Jesus physically cleanses the man. He heals the man. So it might be evident that that man has also been spiritually cleansed as well. Don't miss the structure. This cleansing is forgiveness. And this forgiveness is a healing of the man's sin that is evidenced by healing in the body. All of which is summed up in one word in the Greek, soza. Which means healed, but is often translated as saved. Jesus saves him from his sin and he heals the wound of sin that separated him from God. He heals the shame of sin that he built his life around. He heals the separation of sin between this person and God. In a word, Jesus saves this man who comes to him. And here's what's so, I was just, we were praying in the back and this just hit me. What Jesus says, he says that he's willing. Like you don't have to coerce Jesus. You don't have to impress Jesus. In, in a culture that feels so structured and so shaped around performance, we think that we have to impress one another and impress my professors and impress my employer and impress and impress and impress and impress. You don't have to impress Jesus. He says, I'm willing. Please understand the message of Christianity, if you are in a lake and you are drowning, is not swim harder. It's Jesus coming to you and saying, take my hand. love this. I, I want you to just zoom out for a second here. In this story, who do you see yourself as? The quick process of elimination, Jesus is Jesus, so you're not Jesus. Check. That leaves the crowd and the man who had leprosy. Where do you see yourself? Are you looking at Jesus through the eyes of the person that's coming to him, or are you looking at him from the sides of the road from the crowd? If you 
see yourself in the crowd, I need you to understand that what Jesus does for this one individual is intended to wake you up for your own need for him. The danger of being in the crowd around Jesus is that your relationship with him is proximic, but it is not personal. You're around the things of Jesus, but you don't necessarily come to him in your need. Jesus is there for entertainment, but not engagement relationally as the son of God and the savior of the world. We're around him, but it's not in relationship with him. What Jesus does for this man is absolutely intended to be for this man, but it is also for the crowd. It is for them to realize that what's been seen in the condition of his skin is the same reality that every single one of them and every single one of us have in the condition of our sin. Our sin makes us walking death and creates distance between us and God that only Jesus can heal. And until we realize that we need exactly what this man in the story needed for Jesus to save us, we'll always be on the fringe with Jesus. Always proximic, but never personal. So this is done by Jesus in part, so the crowd would come to their senses and realize Jesus is who Jesus is and that they need him just as much as the man who's been healed. Everyone in the crowd that came to their senses would see themselves in the man who had leprosy. So maybe you see yourselves in the crowd, but maybe you actually see yourself in the man who needs Jesus. Like you're done trying to play the game and pretend and put on the exhausting show for everyone to try to prove to the people around you that you can figure life out on your own. That you're actually at a point where the moment where this is a fork in the road. You need Jesus and you're not going to try to pretend otherwise. You're done pretending so you can save yourself or try to fix yourself up. You're done trying to manufacture a fragile and false peace in your life. You're at the place of honesty that this man is. Lord, if you're willing, you can help me. You can cleanse me. You can save me. And this is incredible. When you come to Jesus, you don't find a cruel taskmaster who's asking you to swim harder or do more or work to earn your salvation. But instead, you come to a Savior who's done all that is necessary for you to be forgiven, healed, and saved now and forever through the perfect life that he lived the death that he died on the cross as he was crucified and slain as for the sins of all who put their trust in him. He dies so that his righteousness might be put on us and our sin might be put on him. But he doesn't just stay dead. He rises again three days later so that we might know that we who put our trust in Jesus are dead to sin and alive to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ and him crucified and res- resurrected. When you come to Jesus and you bring the condition of your sin to him, these are the words that echo through eternity to you. I am willing. Be cleansed. Be forgiven. Be saved. Uh, If you're not a Christian in this room, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. I want to invite you to say those words to him, to to, to come to him and to put your trust in him. And if you are a Christian, I want to invite you to remember that moment that you did. Like, do you rem- Christian, do you remember that moment where you came to that, fi- that conclusion? You're like, oh my gosh, I need Jesus to save me. And his response back to you was, I'm willing, be cleansed. I'm willing, you're sa- I'm willing, you're mine. I remember that moment for me. I got arrested, um, a lot of stuff with cops. I got arrested uh, the spring of my senior year of high school. My entire life essentially unraveled. I was like the made-for-TV high school jock that got everything that he wanted. You name it, I was doing it. But it, it felt like I was trying to just fill a bucket 
full of sand. My life felt dry. It was never satisfying. And every time I tried to pick the bucket up, there were holes at the bottom. So I seemed to fill it again and again and again. I kept trying to fill it with all these things that didn't satisfy me, except everybody around me said it satisfied them. Even though we had an honest conversation, we knew that it didn't. I just felt like I'd just be in that spiral for the rest of my life, just like I'd seen so many people around me. And then my friend invited me to come to church, and I, I heard a man, his name was Alan, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I had a couple realizations in that moment. I, 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 the first one was this, um, I've never heard anybody talk about Jesus that sounded like they believed it, and that was interesting to me. I, I, I listened to what he was saying, and I had this moment when I was like, okay, if everything you're saying is true about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he could do for me, how he, he could save me, that's everything that I've been looking for. And the third thing I realized was that if, that if that's true and I start to follow Jesus, my entire life is going to change. Those are the three realizations I came to in that moment. And for four months, I asked people that were around me in that community questions, and they were really patient with me. They answered my questions, and when they didn't know the answers to them, they'd say, I don't know, but can we meet up again so we can talk about it, so I can have some time to think about it. And they walked with me, walked with me, walked with me. And then it was the summer of 2010 where John 10, 28 just perfectly captures this moment where Jesus says, I give eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them from my hand. I had this moment as I was reading that scripture where it just clicked in my head, and I was like, oh, I'm yours and you're mine. You've done everything that's necessary for me to be saved. Now I'm yours in your mind. You've, you've done enough, Jesus, through, through your perfect life and through the cross and through the resurrection from the grave. You have saved me. I remember that moment. I wonder, wonder if you do. I came to Jesus with nothing but my sin, just like this man, and he gave me everything that I needed from him. So if you come to him, he'll do the same for you tonight. He'll give you life or death. He'll give you salvation in place of your sin. So let's remember, he touched him, he spoke, and then here's this third thing that he does that I think is actually, like, incredibly unexpected. As I've studied this, this has been the most unexpected thing to me. Even people who'd been around Jesus would have expected the first two things, for him to touch and dignify, to speak and forgive and cleanse and heal. But then Luke 5.14 says this. He ordered the man to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded you for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This is crazy. Jesus touches him, speaks to him, saves him. And the last thing Jesus does, he doesn't look at him and say, all right, now follow me. Okay, now go tell other people about me. He says, go to the priest. We be honest, that's a little strange, right? Like that doesn't make any, like it make a little more sense if he said, follow me. Make a little more sense if he said, tell other people about me. Why doesn't Jesus say that? Well, Jesus doesn't say that because he's not going to tell this guy to go and do something that he's already going to go and do. Everywhere this guy goes, he is going to have to tell people, I used to be a leper. I used to have this condition, but I met Jesus and he healed me. He saved me. This guy's going to follow Jesus. It's the next, it's just the natural response for what Jesus has done. He, he's going to tell people about Jesus. It's the natural response for, for what Jesus has done. It is the only appropriate response given the significance of what Jesus has done for this man. That, by the way, is true for every single person in this room that calls himself a Christian. 
If you understand the weight of what it means for you to say, I am a Christian, I was walking death, lost in the condition of my sin, but there was a moment I came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, forgive me and save me. And Jesus responded with a cross and an empty tomb, his death for our sin, his resurrection for our life. He says, I'm willing, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're mine. Then following Jesus and telling people about Jesus isn't actually a big decision. It's the next logical step to follow what Jesus has done for you. What else do you do with the person who saved you into eternal life with God through his sacrifice and salvation? This guy doesn't need to be told what is obvious. So Jesus doesn't address what he's already going to do and instead sends him to do what he might not do. He says, go and show yourself to the priests. Now to break down a whole lot of cultural things that are going on in that moment, what Jesus is saying is go back to the community of faith that you've not been able to enter into because of the condition that kept you away from them. The thing that you saw in you that kept you from going to the synagogue is gone. The thing that kept you from community is handled. So now go back. To go to the priest meant to go to the synagogue, the place he hadn't been able to enter. He'd been cut off and Jesus is saying, not anymore. It's time to return to community. Can you just imagine how uncomfortable that would be for him? Like how many times would he have to explain what happened to the people that kept their distance from him because they're used to him walking through town and yelling out unclean? How many times would the people around him mess up because of how they used to see him? How many times would he walk up to the entrance of the synagogue and stop and tremble and weep because for years he'd not been able to? But Jesus looks at him and he says, not anymore. Go back, go in. Re-enter. After years of separation, Jesus is saying, you need to relearn who you are in light of who God is and what I've done for you. In accord with the law, because your leprosy is gone, the priest will approve it and you can come back into the community. So Jesus sends him back into community. Regardless of what had happened or what's been done or what condition he was in, it was in that place of community of faith that Jesus said, that's where you need to be. Jesus heals, forgives, and saves, and then sends him to a community so he can be strengthened and shaped in that community. Now, I need to clarify this. The community he's a part of does not save him. Only Jesus does that. But it is in that context of community that he'll be shaped, that he'll be strengthened as he continues to relearn who he is and relearn how to follow after God. So hear me so clearly. Here at Saul Company, you can belong before you believe. And we're a kingdom over castle people. We shamelessly want you to be a part of Salt and of Doxa. But Salt and Doxa, for many of you, will only be a short period of time. You'll graduate and get a job in a different city. Maybe we have a church plant there. Maybe we don't. That doesn't matter. Regardless, what's important to lay on top of everything that we do is that we hold at the center of every gathering, Jesus Christ and him alone is the one who saves us from our sin. The community that you're a part of doesn't save you. So we make a bigger deal out of Jesus than Salt Company because only one of the two is perfect and died to save you from your sin. And spoiler alert, it wasn't Salt. So we're going to try to love to try to love and follow Jesus together in Madison because Jesus is perfect. He's Lord and Savior. We'll open up uh, the Bible and talk about him every Thursday. In your connection group, you'll open up and, and you'll talk about him and what it looks like to follow after him each time that, that you gather. We're going to sing about Jesus and not about our us or not about a single, because we're all jacked up and he's perfect, he's the Savior. We're, we're going to do that. And at the same time, as is evidenced by your presence in this room tonight, Jesus does provide salt company 
and he does provide docs and he does provide local churches for us to be strengthened and shaped in. He provides those for you so that you might continue to learn and relearn what it means for you to follow Jesus together in the city that you're in. Our desire for you is for you to take that step. So over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to see these unexpected moments between Jesus and people, just like this unexpected moment of mercy and kindness from Jesus towards this man, where Jesus touches, meets him in his condition. We see that Jesus is gentle and compassionate. Where Jesus speaks, he provides salvation and healing in himself. We see that Jesus is strong and forgiving, and Jesus sins. He moves the man, he moves us towards community to strengthen and shape us because he does care about our formation and our life as we follow after him. This is an incredible, unexpected, overwhelming display of the kindness of God to this man and the kindness of God to us through Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to just, where you are, just close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or anything like that. I just want to give you a moment of focus and concentration here in the room to consider what's been said. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, my hope is that tonight is like a fork in the road for you. That you would understand that Jesus is willing to heal, forgive, and save tonight, right now. And what's on you as you stand on the street and the crowd parts and Jesus is the only one that's there looking at you, is will you say yes or no to him? There's no other option. A maybe later is a no now. Will you say yes to Jesus? He's willing. You don't have to coerce him. You don't have to impress him. You don't have to come clean to him. You just have to come to him. So would you do that? the Savior of your sin, to eternal life with him forever. You can say yes to Jesus tonight. Or maybe you're here and you're a Christian and winter break was absolutely wild. You even thought about not coming tonight because of how rough winter break was, whatever that might be. I just need you to hear this again. Jesus is not afraid of anything in the winter break. Jesus is not afraid of anything. There's nothing untouchable in your life. Nothing if you come to him that will put distance between you and him because he is the one who says, I'm willing you are forgiven. I'm willing you are healed. I'm willing you are saved as you come to him. So don't miss him sending you back into community. What if you made a decision tonight to build your semester around community and not community around your semester? That God may provide community for you to be shaped and strengthened as you learn to follow Jesus together in Madison this year? What if this is actually where that flourishing relationship with Jesus lies in the practice of being strengthened and shaped together in community? So whether you need to say yes to Jesus tonight or whether you need to respond in some way, thinking about Jesus touching that untouchable place, Jesus speaking tenderly words to you saying, I am willing, or Jesus sending you to community, however you need to respond, I just want you to take a moment and pray. Even if your prayer is, God, how do I need to respond? You just need to sit there in the quiet. To take a moment, consider this text, to consider Jesus himself and pray. Take a moment and we'll pray and sing.
I still feel this need sometimes, like I've got to impress you or like I've got to be enough or do enough for you. And so I confess um, my weakness. God, to lead you again tonight, to hear it even as I was saying it again, again tonight, may you will be God, I thank you that you love each and every man and woman. I, I'm thankful that you love this campus. I'm thankful for your kindness to these men and women. I'm thankful for the leaders of these connection groups. I'm thankful for who you are and for what you've done. You've given us so much and it would have been enough and yet you still have chosen to do more. And you say that you're good. So, so Jesus, even now as we worship, would you put on the forefront of our mind that thing that you've drawn up for us this evening? That way that we need to see you again as beautiful and good and true and kind. That way that we need to surrender again the parts of our lives that we've been holding or that we've not wanted you to touch or not thought that you would. Perhaps we just need to sing again knowing that you are willing to receive us. Jesus, I thank you. sound to you and that we bless you we want us just to praise you help us to make you your way amen Jesus help amen let's stand let's stand as we worship together <laughs> 